The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. That would be five now, Will. Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Mike Coe in the house. Dan Nathan, Karen Feinerman, Tim Seymour will join us in just moments. Tonight on Fast, a major buzzkill for one name in the retail space today, but some of our traders aren't quite giving up hope on it yet. We'll find out what it is and why they are so bullish. And turbulence ahead, Americans getting ready to take flight for the long holiday weekend. But top analyst Hunter Kay says airlines will not be able to handle the surge in demand will get his outlook for the industry this year. Plus, we've got a special edition of Fast Money coming up at 6 p.m. And we're answering all your burning trading questions. So if you've got them, tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We might just answer them on the air. We start up by firing the Fast Money Time Machine. You re- might remember back in December when we asked our traders to pick the acronym they thought would rule in 2021. Take a look at how they've done. Tim's acronym so far has been the strongest. That would be RISE, Rio Tinto, the IWM Small Cap Index, Schlumberger, and Emerging Markets. That was up more than 21% so far. Dan here chose Abide, which would be Amazon, Alibaba, um, IPOC, which is Chamath Palihapitiya SPAC that merged with Clover Health, Disney and Expedia. That is up about 5%. And rounding out the acronyms was Karen's WTF. Not what you think it is. Walmart, TJ, FedEx, TJ Maxx, and FedEx, that's up 3%. So what are the themes that have worked so far this year? What is going to rule in the second half of the year? Dan, I'll, I'll throw it to you. You're in a solid second place there. Not so themes. solid, Mel. We had the but, S&P 500 close up close to 15% yeah. of the year, so up 5%. It just shows you how difficult stock picking can be um, at times. You know, I was really um, interested in Amazon um, and Alibaba as, as kind of first half. They, really disappointing. I mean, when you think about it, that seemed like kind of a layup for, like, you know, this consumer that's in great shape both here and probably abroad. That didn't work particularly well. Um, Disney reopened trade again it's basically flat to down um, a little bit on the year and then you have something like Expedia that actually worked really well and then you know on the SPAC side that's going to be fits and starts here we're going to see a lot of interesting stories that do well um, some that don't right I mean when we asked you guys to pick them SPACs were the hottest thing under the sun and so that obviously has uh, fizzled. Also, we had uh, fits and starts when it comes to interest rates. We had them go spike higher to 1.74%, which really th- sort of threw a, a wrench in some of the tech trade here. Karen, what were you thinking when you thought of WT? What were you thinking? <laughs> WTF yeah, with your WTF at the time. <laughs> and you yes, think that's going to revive in yes. the second half? Well, what WTF really should have been was Weight Watchers, Target, and Facebook, which would have fared a lot, lot better. Um, so yeah, frustrating. Definitely the, the F FedEx. I'm staying with that. We've talked a lot about that in the last week. I really like that. Um, 
So I'm sticking with that. TJX has been disappointing in the retail rally. It really hasn't participated as well. Primarily, they, you know, e-commerce has never been their thing. The treasure hunt is obviously part of their appeal. So that's been slower uh, as reopening in person has been a little slower than I thought it would be. I'm sticking with that as well. The, um, the Walmart had a nice run the other day. I guess I want to change there to ATF, the A being alphabet, and al- uh, you know, um, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms seemed somewhat catchy as well. So that's where the A is alphabet. And I just think that, um, I know we're going to talk about inflation, but the kind of trades that can do well in, a ri- in growing GDP, but also potentially growing inflation. So and, and I think the valuation there, despite it having run up, is still not particularly expensive, given how extraordinary this business is. So already so that's you're pivoting. Where I am now. Yeah, you're pivoting away from Walmart. Yeah. Um, Tim, you really benefited um, by having the foresight to, to lean into the energy trade, to really lean into the reopening trade. Well, the sense that I had, and I, I, I think despite some of the on-again, off-again elements of the Treasury bond market telling you maybe we don't have as much growth, GDP in the U.S. is going to grow six and a half to seven percent, not just this year, but next year. And to me, that reflation trade, and even though commodity prices got well ahead of themselves, and we've talked about lumber and we've talked about copper pulling back, um, I think you still have a dynamic here with both reflation and absolutely in energy prices. Um, you know, OPEC this week, or even today, I should say, is seemingly punting, uh, doing any kind of an output cut, while the developed world, not the emerging world, not the, not the, you know, the de- developing world, is, is seeing demand that it hasn't had in a long time. That's going to continue to put energy prices higher. In fact, you know, we came into this underinvested into energy. So, yeah, I like the energy trade. I like the reflation trade. I like small cap and growth. And, and I do think emerging markets can continue to run. All right. Well, we fired up the Fast Money Time Machine, not to skewer anybody for picking a bad acronym, but really to discuss the themes that worked in the first half and the, and the themes that could continue to work in the, in the second half of the year. So, Mike, um, you didn't have an acronym at the start of the year, but seeing these acronyms, which themes do you think will continue to work? Well, I mean, you know, I, I still like the uh, energy space. I, I like what Tim, you know, I think I see the same things that he does there. You know, I actually like a lot of the names that Dan has on his list. And if I was creating a new acronym now, uh, a couple of them might be on it. Um, certainly, I mean, Baba, I've actually said, I mean, I think it's a, an interesting value proposition right here. Uh, it's not particularly expensive, remarkable growth opportunity. Amazon, I don't really think I need to explain to everybody that this is a company that has successfully grown into its valuation and continues to. It's in all the right places. We're actually looking at not only top-line growth but margin growth as well. Uh, you know, and obviously their exposure in the cloud space. So I definitely like those two names. And Disney, I mean, to me, what's interesting about this is that, of course, you know, the reopening trade, I think, is, is largely played. I think we're kind of done with that. But that's not the thing that I see with Disney. You know, I look at the valuation of a company like Netflix, and then I think about something like Disney Plus, and I say, okay, well, Disney Plus is likely growing faster than Netflix is, so I want to attach a higher multiple to that business than I would to Netflix. And then the rest of the company begins to look pretty cheap. So I think Disney, I definitely would pick that one. I like the energy space generally. I didn't pick Slumberjay at the beginning of the year, but I'm a long-time holder of Halliburton. So that's uh, kind of a correlated trade there. Yeah. I have a new one, Mel. Can, okay. I, can I do it? Am I, do it. Uh, I don't Go know. I, I missed the call earlier today. I don't know. And this one is, is kind of like a, an ode to you in a way. I'm going to call it Apes. 
APES, okay? Because you kind of, aren't you the queen of the apes? Isn't that what's going on in the Reddits and stuff like that? All right, so here's my my new one right here. It's AMC. I think you sell it here. A $28 billion market cap, and I know that the apes, that's not what they do. Um, I just don't see this thing with $11 billion in debt. They can continue to raise as much money as possible. Just relative valuation, not going to work here. So that's the A. P, Pfizer, okay? Boosters, that's going to happen. We're going to do that for, for the vaccine boosters. Okay, so there's your P. Then I have an Exxon. I'm going to take the opposite side of you guys. I don't like the large integrateds here. Six to nine months ago, we were talking about how they're going to defend their dividend. And now, all of a sudden, these things are making new 52-week highs. Uh-huh. So I'm a seller of Exxon. And the last one is SoFi. It was my final trade the other day. Yeah. Final trade last week. I think, and we're going to talk about Robinhood a little bit. I think that, that some of these fintechs and some of these entrants to the market stuff, the valuations that they're getting, SoFi should have to higher valuations. To be clear, Whoa. liking oil, liking Silverstone, yeah. and liking health. Burton is not liking Exxon, Conoco, and Chevron necessarily, Exxon in particular, and that is because, you know, they are obviously benefiting from higher oil prices, but they're not replacing their reserves. They obviously are trying to maintain their dividend. They have a huge amount of debt, and you can't service the needs of all of those three things simultaneously with the cash flow that they have. You can either pay the dividend and pay down debt and then not replace your reserves, so you have to do some mixture, but there's a compromise there, and I don't really see Exxon as a great investment. Yeah, I mean, Tim, and, and Tim, you, you are also in some integrateds, I believe, but really, if you wanted to play this move above 75 in crude, I mean, the more levered way is obviously, obviously to go with names that are in an OIH as opposed to um, the, the big integrateds. Yeah, I, I just think that the oil services is, is your higher beta play on higher energy prices. They, they have absolutely underperformed uh, on a linear basis to the oil price. Maybe, you know, maybe you can't extrapolate that, but I can tell you um, that they've massively underperformed a move in crude, which, which you know, to me is, is a function of many things, right? It's, it's not just that we're reopening and that there's more demand. It's, it's that it was underinvested. So, look, I love Schlumberger because they have the best balance sheet in, in – in the oil services. They are the technology leader. Um, I think they've showed enormous kind of capacity and, and you know, capex restraint and, and capital discipline at a time when I think this is still a really exciting space where there is innovation. So, you know, to me, um, I, some of these trends on commodities and emerging markets are, are things that these aren't short one year or even, you know, shorter trades. Um, I think, you know, we've seen long cycles. They are long cycles, and it took a long time and obviously a lot of pain to build up to a place where the fundamentals switched. Then you've had these catalysts, whether it's been COVID, et cetera. Karen is raising her hand, which is uncharacteristic. Oh, so, of course, Karen, go ahead. Yes. Well, let me just play devil's advocate for a moment. So oil, obviously, that was a big headline today. But let's look at, I mean, we're in backwardation, right? If we look at oil out uh, June of 22, it's 67. So does that, you know, to me, that's not the best sort of ballast for the oil continuing to go higher story. Just playing devil's advocate here. You want me to respond? Yep. Yeah, well, I, th- I think you have a case here where, first of all, the curve didn't, didn't price in $75 oil either. Um, I think you've got a case where, look, positioning is, is wrong on this. And, and the expectations that it's going to take longer uh, for infrastructure and some of this capacity to, to actually be, uh, you know, to follow through on some of this demand. I think there's also not a view that the demand we're seeing is sustainable. That's why the curve reflects that. And, and I guess, again, the oil curve has been wrong many times. I'm not, I'm not Karen, you're never wrong. Um, I'm not going to accuse you of being wrong here. No. But um, to me, no, uh, no. again, the setup I'm, I'm, for look, energy companies is... Well, 
Well, it's been it's been this has all been about underinvestment. And then from a market's perspective, it's been all about underweight. And, and these are companies that are not going to burn you the same way, in my view, because they can't. Um, they, they have different capital approach. They have dip, different capital efficiency. If you believe, though, that the curve has been wrong and the curve is wrong, Karen, in terms of um, in terms of the, the future price of oil, and it actually would be higher than 67, then what impact does that have, if any, on your view of the consumer? It's, I think it's starting to get a little worrisome for the consumer. I mean, we'll see how quickly uh, gas prices. I don't know if we had, someone sent me a, uh, a, a photo of gas prices. I don't know if we have that in uh, Menlo Park, right outside Silicon Valley. Um, pretty high, right? And at some point, that really starts to uh, eat away at the consumer's buying power. We haven't seen it yet, but consistent prices that high will do it. Not a spike, but consistent prices. So that concerns me a little bit. I don't think we need to worry about $5 gasoline prices in Menlo Park where everybody's rolling around in Teslas these days and probably could afford the $5 gas even if they weren't. Uh, you know, the important thing to remember about the curve in the futures market is that backwardation simply tells you that demand is outstripping supply in the near term. And it's generally viewed to be a bullish signal for the underlying commodity. If you take a look at some of the worst markets that we've seen in crude, they, you know, you're going to see steep contango markets. That's when the spot and the near-dated futures trade well under, and that just tells you that there's oversupply, and that creates some overhang. It takes a while for production to ramp. Sometimes when you see uh, the cur curve in backwardation, that is actually just reflecting how much time it takes for supply basically to come online to service the anticipated increase in demand. I, I think that the fundamentals still remain strong, though. We are obviously in a growing economy. Demand is coming back in a big way. And it's going to take a little while for the commodity markets to keep pace. All right. Let's uh, get to Robinhood here, officially filing to go public with the SEC. Kate Rooney's got all the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. Robinhood plans to list on the NASDAQ under the ticker HOOD, H-O-O-D. We got a look at the trading app's financials with that IPO paperwork a bit earlier. For the full year, 2020, Robinhood was profitable with net income of $7 million compared to a loss a year before. But for the most recent quarter, Robinhood lost $1.4 billion. I'm told this was due to a one-time write-down on debt it issued to stay afloat during the GameStop saga. Robinhood had raised about $3.5 billion from its VC investors in convertible bonds at a 30% discount. So I'm told that's what is behind that quarterly loss. Robinhood's revenue, meanwhile, for that quarter, $522 million. And the majority of that was transaction revenue or payment for order flow, mostly. And most of it comes from options trading. That made up about 38% of revenue. Equities, meanwhile, was about a quarter of revenue. And cryptocurrencies now accounts for 17% of quarterly revenue. That was up from about 3% in the same time a year ago. Dogecoin, meanwhile, accounted for about 34% of total crypto revenue in Q1. Robinhood now has 18 million net funded accounts. That's a 150% increase in assets, uh, actually accounts year over year. Assets under custody, meanwhile, 80 billion up from 19 billion a year ago. And they are setting aside between 20 and 35% of this offering for retail customers, but they have to be Robinhood retail customers. So those using Robinhood's trading app. And finally, guys, the risks. The company mentions ongoing regulatory investigations and litigation. One involves a U.S. attorney's office issuing a search warrant for the CEO's phone. They also say there are 50 putative class actions against Robinhood. They mention payment for order flow, risk of regulation as well, 
and stimulus checks ending. And we should remind you guys, Robinhood is a five-time CNBC Disruptor 50 company that topped this year's list. CEO Vlad Tenev is among the featured speakers of this year's Disruptor 50 Summit. You can register for that event at CNBCEvents.com. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Um, that's a long, interesting list of risks there for Robinhood, um, particularly when it comes to its business structure, the majority of revenue coming from payment for order flow. A bright light is being shown on that space at this very moment in time, particularly by the SEC head, Gary Gensler. I mean, Dan, it, it, it's an interesting business, but I mean, it really benefited from the spike in retail trading. And can we replicate that in the future? 34% of their crypto revenue was from Doge. 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 Okay, here's another thing. All right, I'm just going to say this. If there's another financial company that is listed on the NASDAQ here and there was a headline that uh, there is a warrant for the CEO's phone, <laughs> how much do you think that stock would be down on that headline? Like 5% maybe? You know, or something. I mean, like that's a horrible headline. I mean, there was nothing particularly great, I think, in, 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 in that whole laundry list of Kate's things. And, you know, when I think about the option stuff, I'll let Mike speak to that a little bit. Um, you know, we know there was a lot of new entrance to the market. You saw that year-over-year customer growth. We know that they're using money that was given to them when they were forced to stay home. They're looking for leverage. They're looking for teeny, um, like, 3 cent, 10 cent, 20 cent uh, cryptos to play, options to play, that sort of thing. It's just not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. You look at the average size of the accounts that they have um, there. It just doesn't, it, it's more like a um, legal casino on your iPhone than it is a sustainable, I think, um, you know, financial services company. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's round up a couple of things. So 18 million accounts, let's just call it 20 yeah. on $80 billion in, sure. in revenue, mm-hmm. uh, $80 billion in assets, 4000 bucks per account. Yeah. I mean, that's not too impressive. 38% of their revenue is coming from options trading. I'm, I'm actually surprised. That strikes me as low. In conventional brokerage space, you know, the revenues on the option side on a per account basis are substantially higher. Because options expire, you need to trade them with more regularity than you do with stocks. You create a stock portfolio, and oftentimes you're going to let that sit. Uh, they don't have the assets per account, obviously, that's all that attractive. Uh, the PFOF issue... You know, payment I, for order flow. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, using insider lexicon there. So payment for order flow, you know, this has been just par for the course in the option space since the 1990s, and a lot of conventional brokers depend on it. Sure. Guess what, folks? This is why you don't pay a commission when you click to trade and buy an option. You are paying, but it's getting paid on the back end right. by market makers uh, essentially you know, creating these refunds or rebates back to the people who are providing the order flow. Uh, to me, it's, it's pretty tough. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see where something like this is going to price, but, I mean, account size is this small, litigation risk, and, you know, the fact that they're hinged to things like Dogecoin, I mean, this, this, it's not that exciting to me, I have to say. You should thank Elon Musk. Um, by the way, Robin <laughs> also says we cannot assure that similar events, referring to what happened in January with GameStop and the emergency funding it had to seek, we cannot assure that similar events will not occur in the future. Karen Feinerman, is Robinhood an attractive investment to you? To me, no, for, you know, the guys laid out all the reasons. That actually sounds more sort of boilerplate to me, the last one you just said, than, you know, the warrant for the phone, that kind of thing. It's sort of interesting to me. I mean, every every IPO has a little bit of, you know, risk that are boilerplate and some that are maybe a little more concerning. This is just chock full of them to me. I think they want to get it through as quickly as possible is my guess. I mean, would you really want to file this with all this in there if you thought, oh, it's going to be cleaned up in short order? <laughs> I wouldn't. So I'm just thinking, 
you know, this is as good as it's going to get. Let's just try to get it through at any price. And I'm wondering, Coinbase, was it the actual day of, you would remember this, was the, the actual day Coinbase went public, the peak of Bitcoin? I think it was close to, and we being? actually asked that very question on the show. The day before. Is this, dare we say, dare we ask, yes. is this going to be the peak for Bitcoin? Pe- so, and so I close. wonder, is this the peak for the GameStops and AMCs of the world the, the day that trade. Robinhood goes public? Yeah. Because I think also the, the, inve- the traders on Robinhood, don't they get a little bit of stock if they give referrals and open, people open new Robinhood accounts? They get a little bit of Robinhood stock? I, I think. Someone at me if yeah. that is not correct. I don't, but I, and they'll be sellers of that stock as well, I, I imagine. All right, coming up, auto stocks on the move today as companies report Q2 auto sales buckle up. We've got the details next. Plus, calm before the storm. During a storm, there's a live look at Newark International Airport as passengers start taking off for the holiday weekend. A top airline analyst will join us in just a few to help navigate the friendly skies. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at the car makers on the move today on the back of the auto sales report. Phil LeBeau's got the breakdown. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. This was a strange month, and we knew it was going to be a strange month because the chip shortage and the record low inventories meant we really weren't sure what we would see from the domestic automakers versus the foreign automakers. I bring that up as I start to show you the different sales results for the month of June and for the second quarter. Let's start with General Motors. Sales increasing, as expected, just under 40% for the month. But it's uh, inventory down 36% since the end of Q1. So the dealers were limited by how many vehicles they could sell. Why does that matter? Well, as you take a look at shares of Toyota, it matters because Toyota outsold General Motors in the second quarter. That is the first time since 1998 that GM was not number one in the U.S., in one in any quarter in terms of auto sales. By the way, Toyota sales up almost 40%. Here's what we saw in terms of the sales and the overall pace. According to Auto Data, we just got this number, a pace of sales of 15.35 million vehicles, a little weaker than many people expected. And again, that's because it's such low inventory. Dealers were restricted with what they could do to meet the demand that was out there. And that also meant that the dealers didn't have to offer as rich of a deal. On average, it was about a $3,000 incentive per vehicle. For a point of comparison, that was about $5,700 or $5,800 per vehicle on the incentive side last year. 
We want to take a look at Ford. We want to take a look at Tesla. Why Ford and Tesla? Tomorrow morning, we'll hear from Ford in terms of Q2 sales. We also expect to get the Q2 delivery number from Tesla. Tesla does it in the first three days of the, uh, after the end of a quarter. Usually, it's on the second day, so that's our expectation. And in terms of what people are expecting for Q2 deliveries from Tesla, the expectation, according to the fact set, is that the company delivered a little over 200,000 vehicles, just over 202,000. So that's the magic number that people will be focused on. Though I have to point out, Melissa, I've seen estimates of everywhere from 189,000 all the way up to 210,000. So there's always a wide range when it comes to quarterly delivery estimates for Tesla. It's as varied as the price targets on the stock itself. Phil, thank you. Philippo in Chicago for us. Um, Tim Seymour, in terms of the auto sales, anything surprise you? No, not really. And I, I think unlike a trip that's foregone because of you know, a demand issue or a meal you haven't eaten or something that's consumable, look, a, a delayed car purchase will be purchased. And, and so I'm, I'm not that worried about a chip shortage for automakers. And GM today reiterated the fact that they see huge demand into the second half of the year and into 2022. And they talked about the economy and they talked about the consumer. Uh, we have all the stats. We've run them on this show in terms of the average age of the car on the road. We know the commitment that they're making to EV and to autonomous. We know the profitability of this company's never been better and, and their efficiency also in terms of how they're running their business. So, um, I, you know, the, these, these numbers were what we expected. We are aware of the constraints. And in fact, I think, you know, you've priced in a lot of bad news on the constraints in these companies. Yeah, I'll just add that, you know, all of this data um, that we said, like, so Tim said he's not particularly surprised. There's a lot of things very supportive about the used car market, and I would go to AutoNation. I know that's a name that we've talked about a lot. I really like it on a comparative valuation compared to Carvana that has about 40% of their sales. Uh, AutoNation sales are getting more than 50% of their total sales are going to be online. Carvana has that really fat um, multiple, despite the fact that they lose a lot of money. So to me, AutoNation topped out about 107 uh, a couple months ago. It probably sold off peak to trough about 15, 16 percent. It looks like it's making a run back there. And I think everything that Phil LeBoeing just said is supportive of the used car market and automation. Yeah. In particular. yeah, I mean, the part that was the two parts that are most particularly relevant, of course, is that when the inventories are low and the prices of new cars are going higher, that's a, a wonderful situation for a dealer because, of course, that's the margin. You have less price competition. That's going to be helpful. It has elevated used car prices significantly and is mm -hmm. tend to be a larger margin uh, on those products as well. AutoNation obviously does a lot in that space, too. But the dealers were the first thing that I was thinking of. I mean, just imagine if you see a $1,000 margin expansion on per unit basis on $15 million. That's $15.5 billion wow. worth of incremental income that is going to go, if you just say cumulatively, across the dealership space. So, uh, you know, whatever you were thinking, you know, you need to handicap that. And, of course, I expect, as Tim does, that, you know, the demand, the unmet demand for, you know, replacement trucks, the year... The light-duty truck sales are going to be phenomenal when they get back on the lot. They obviously have a real shortage of them now. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The skies are about to get busy as passengers take flight for the holiday weekend. So a top airline analyst is joining us next to chart a course for the airline stocks. Plus, Walgreens gets the boot. Shares dropping as concerns of slowing vaccinations hit investors. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. 
Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it the calm before the mad holiday rush. That is a live picture of rainy Newark Airport. This weekend, the FAA expects to see the most airspace traffic since the beginning of the pandemic. One top airline analyst warns it may be too much for the infrastructure to handle. Hunter K. of Wolf Research is rated number one by institutional investor. He joins us now. Hunter, great to have you with us. Great shot. Hey, thank you, Melissa. Good to see you. Um, When you say can't handle it, meaning going from zero to whatever speed, 60 miles an hour, they can't do it? Well, I, I mean, look, they'll they'll handle it. There's going to be some hiccups. They've already proactively canceled a bunch of flights into the weekend. But look, fact is, they're, they're in a tough spot right now. I mean, leisure demand is going to be back to over 100% of what it was pre-COVID this weekend, but then it's going to go right back to being down 20, 25% three weeks later. So, you know, you can't really stay staff up what requires two three months in advance to staff up for these types of surge weekends you just can't really do it and they're so starved for cash flow and revenue they're going to schedule the airline aggressively and probably just hope for the best so what happens i mean does it does it change uh your models for the airlines at all do these flights eventually get taken or, or does the time pass for instance if american cancels a bunch of flights do people just lose out on those flights and they cancel their trips do they take the trips later it doesn't really impact the stock, frankly, or the models, to be honest. Yeah, I think there's obviously the longer-term impact of potentially like a regulatory blowback or something like that. And it's not good for their brands. And it's not good for their longer-term pricing power. But, yeah, if they cancel your flight because it's their problem, they'll get refunded um, if, they can, if they can't reaccommodate you. But, yeah, these types of things don't tend to impact stocks or our models that much. It's just kind of a kind of noise. Hey, Hunter, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. So you have us well-trained hey, to Tim. focus on a couple things, including capacity yeah, and, and energy prices, um, and sometimes good, sometimes bad for airlines. Quickly, Sketch, you said you know, how much capacity to add online. Ultimately, you're very often bearish on airlines adding too much capacity once things start to get good. Give me that outlook. And aren't energy prices good for the airline sector right now? Yeah, Tim, thanks. Um, good to hear your voice. Uh, so, you know, right now, United had an annual state this week, and they said they were going to grow 4 to 6% compound annual growth rate from 2019 through 23. And it implies they're going to be about 25 to 30% bigger in 23 relative to 2019. That, that's a lot higher than what we were expecting. We have they're closer to 5% bigger. Um, and now it's on the, it's, it's, we'll see what happens with the competitive response. Not a lot of other airlines have the aircraft to respond in that type of aggressive manner. I think United is trying to catch the competition a bit flat footed because they didn't really cut their fleets that much while others did. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the only way that airlines tend to not overgrow capacity should grow in line roughly with GDP is if they all have the same cost problem. And high oil prices are one of those problems. And with Prudence at 75, it, it's high, but not quite high enough to deter that type of excess capacity for now. Hey, Hunter, it's Karen. Thanks very much for being on. Let me ask you about sure. the higher margin business traveler, the international traveler. Where do you see that? How do you see that demand coming back over time? Yeah, so business travel is still down about 65% from pre COVID. Uh, international, at least long haul international, still down like 90, 95%. Uh, Caribbean is back, but that's de facto domestic. Uh, you know, we think that business travel is never going to fully come back. I think it's going to still be down 10, 15% forever, you know, outside of the nominal growth that occurs on the growth on the capacity that does come back. But international should snap back, I think, pretty quickly. 
the vast majority of volume in international markets is leisure. Uh, unfortunately for the airlines, the, the, a good chunk of the revenue comes from the front of the cabin on the premium side, and that remains to be seen how that's going to come back. But I think international should be back probably about 75-80% by the next year, and business travel should probably be back by about 70-75% by the end of next year, I think. So, Hunter, just to underscore what you said, you don't think business travel is ever going to return to pre-COVID levels. A lot of the airline CEOs are saying that they believe it will, and they're modeling and buying planes accordingly. Are we going to, is it, event, is it uh, an eventuality that we're going to hit that point where they are adding capacity back on that they don't need because they're not anticipating uh, the, the demand correctly? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great debate. I have this debate with our clients all the time, and, and the fact is nobody really knows. Obviously, you know, Scott Kirby, the CEO of United, has better data than I do, and he's a very smart guy, and, and he thinks that business travel is going to come all the way back. He, he might be right, but, you know, just ask yourself the same question. What type of conveniences have you afforded yourself these days during COVID? And, you know, you, there's a lot more people that are coaching their kids' soccer teams now than they did before. And, you know, if you're going to sit here and say, you know, we're never going to go back to the office full-time, then why should we ever go back to the office? Why should we ever return to business travel full-time? I just don't think that that makes a whole lot of sense. But, Look, he's been bullish over the last few months. He's been right, um, but it's a philosophical debate at this point, and they're ready for it. Certainly, United is if it does. Yeah, Delta variant. How big of a how big of a caveat is that in your mind? Uh, it's it's not great. I mean, let's be honest. It's not great. I mean, um, here in the U.S., it's obviously not as big of an issue. Uh, it's not deterring leisure travel as we just discussed. But you know, there, there's pragmatic elements to it here too. I mean, you know. When UK doesn't open its borders uh, because of Delta variant concerns, and you're going to see major multinational corporations here in the U.S. restrict their own business travel, even on domestic. So, you know, you shouldn't expect a company like 3M or, or Caterpillar to relax business travel restrictions when the UK corridor is still closed, even if it is a domestic business trip. So, I mean, this stuff really just has to go away. And, and travel passports and um, PCR tests, that's not going to solve it. This, this really just has to just go away. Uh, before people can get back to normal. But so the Delta variant's an issue because there's just not much summer left for a lot of these airlines to capitalize on. Yep. Hunter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, Melissa. Thanks, everybody. Hunter K. Um, Mike, where do you stand on the airline uh, trade here? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with him on the business travel front in particular. Uh, you know, it's it isn't simply an issue of whether or not the pandemic or the Delta variant is a remaining threat. It isn't simply just the fact that people, maybe they have decided that they're going to go to a hybrid work model where they're you know, staying work from home Monday, Friday, like Lazard said they're going to start doing. Uh, that's not the only issue. The other issue is that the infrastructure, the technology that everybody has on their desk to be able to do a better job locally working either from their local office or from their home has all improved. I mean, people have got virtual television studios in their house and they figured out how to make this kind of thing work where that wasn't working out. They're improving how they can collaborate in a virtual environment. And that really is the pressure factor taking away all the rest of this. Right. I mean, One stat. Okay. Zoom, its market cap is greater than United, Delta, American, Southwest and JetBlue combined. I mean, like that just tells you, I think, all you need to know. I mean, Hunter just said that the CEO of United has better data than he does. Um, the market is speaking um, for itself in that regard, if you think about it. So, I mean, you know, to me, I don't really think that um, that level of business travel is ever going to be back to those pre-pandemic levels. See, and it might have been going that way anyway because of the secular shift in technology. You can right? go see a lot more clients on Zoom. Yeah. Than you oh, can yeah, back to, back to back to back. 
All right. Um, by the way, Hunter K's top picks are Ryanair and Sun Country. Coming up, CNBC's quarterly stock report results are in, so we're getting the traders to weigh in on some of the biggest questions. That is next. Plus, shares of Walgreens in the red today on the back of earnings. But two of our traders are still bullish on this one. We'll find out why. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uh, CNBC is out with its exclusive quarterly stock report today. We polled market participants about where they see things headed this year. So let's get right straight, straight into the results. We start off with what is your favorite inflation trade? What is your favorite inflation trade? I feel like they should play Jeopardy music. What is your favorite inflation trade? Mike, what would your favorite inflation trade be? Well, I mean, we were talking about some of them next. A lot of it's already been played out. But, I mean, I, you know, the commodity names that have done so well, I like the oil services sector. That's certainly a place that I have been playing and I would continue to. Um, oil, 58% said is their favorite inflation trade, followed by consumer staples. That's interesting, 15%. Oh, Bitcoin, actually. Bitcoin, Karen, would you agree with that? That Bitcoin is their favorite trade? No, would be yours. Oh, you're saying, is it, what is, is it, it, is it an, is it is an inflation yes. trade? Uh, yeah, it probably is, because if you get inflation, that could be caused by the Fed or the Fed not raining, uh, you know, you know, the Fed continuing to be have easy money. That's part of the Bitcoin story. But that's not my inflation trade. Just so it, mine is banks. OK, well. That gets to our second question here. That question is, what oh, okay. are the I'm best sorry. sectors for the second half? <laughs> Financials by 67%, followed by tech and then energy. Karen already said banks are her favorite trade for the second half. Tim, how about you? <laughs> well, I like the bank's call because, again, infl- inflation means higher rates. We saw what banks did uh, before the yield curve started to flatten. Uh, you know, banks were, were the place to be. I, and, I, you know, if you look at a lot of the banks, look at J.P. Morgan, uh, I think, up, you know, 15 to 18 percent year to date, you know, I mean, relative to energy, which has moved a lot more um, and the mega cap tech names, which some have moved, some have not. Um, I think there's a there's an argument for for tech. I do think that the the mega cap tech names, especially the apples and and the Amazons, again, if you're doing relative to first half performance and we're playing the trading game, um, you don't have a very high bar to clear. Um, whereas I'm a little more worried about energy, even though you know I'm bullish on it. So if I'm playing the game according to what's going to do better in the second half, um, again, around some of the dynamics, whether they're inflation or not, um, I think banks have a better shot, but I think then followed by tech. All right, finally, where do you see 10-year yields by the end of the year? Nearly half thought it would be above 2%. Another half said it'll be about where it is now. Only 3% think it'll be below one5 Mike, where do you fall? Uh, I think probably near the current level. Um, you know, I think uh, this is the boat's pretty loaded on one side of the bet as far as inflation is concerned. But the entirety of the curve is essentially controlled by we know who. So, uh, I, you know, it's it's going to create some serious pressure if you basically make money considerably more expensive. And I not expect them to do that. Yeah, I think there's a very strong chance over the next couple of months prior to the Jackson Hole, late August Fed Symposium, uh, the, the St. Louis Fed. Um, I think you're going to see the 10-year go to 1.2%. That is the 200-day moving average. We are in this downtrend 1. here. 1.2%. Yeah, so I, I really fall do. in that 3% it, small, small, small But here's minority. what I think is going to happen, Mel. I, I actually think that it's going to get overdone to the downside. I think people are going to capitulate there. And I think you're going to see the Fed think about or change their uh, think about, think about. Is that the thing think there? About, think, think about, think about, think about. 
Yeah, I think they're going to start thinking about I think that the, the, the idea of a taper is going to be very much in the lexicon by Q4, and then you'll see rates start moving higher. So I think we need to shake out, do the thing. The pain trade is lower right now. All right. Coming up, Walgreens dropping more than 7% today. We're digging into what had investors checking out. Plus, there's a special edition of Fast Money coming your way right after this. We are giving you the chance to ask about the stocks on your radar. That is all coming up top of the hour at 6, so stick around. Fast Money's back right after this. Miss a moment of Fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Walgreens under pressure today despite reporting an earnings beat before the bell. Investors worry the boost from COVID vaccines will start to fade. And uh, they were also worried about the turnaround strategy from new CEO Roz Brewer, who took over back in March. Karen, you said the outlook was kind of concerning. You still like this one, though. I do still like it. I think that's what what made it not trade so well. I didn't find it that concerning. I think maybe she's being a little bit conservative. But even if she's not, the valuation here already reflects, right, uh, you know, that things aren't going gangbusters. So it's got a pretty high dividend yield, which is not at all the reason why I own it, but I don't hold it against it. But the P.E. is low here. And I think there is some reopened sort of uh, tailwinds that they could still have. And, uh, you know, she's just she's just getting going there. So we'll see what she can do. And I feel like t- this minor disappointment to take one P.E. multiple point off the stock when the P.E. multiple is already so low, seems overdone to me. So uh, if I own none, I would certainly be a buyer today. I think it was overdone. Yeah. Tim, you're in the same boat as Karen. Well, uh, and I own some. And, and if anything, I'd be looking to add on some of this weakness. Look, the, the outlook and the full year essentially guide for, for 21 up about 10 percent, um, I think, you know, reflects already some good news in there. And I think people wanted to see more. Agree. Uh, Roz Brewer has, has three or four levers to pull with this company. And I think they include kind of their e-pharma business, which is, I think, just getting going and where there could be a, a much larger multiple. I think, you know, people are still s- somewhat concerned about the payer PBM uh, type relationship. And, and some of the, you know, I think the, the, the pull forward of sales from COVID. I, I actually think that the reopening trade is even better for folks uh, like Walgreens. And I think the, the, the multiple, though, as Karen pointed out, it, it's just way too attractive, especially in an environment that, if anything, um, whether it's variants, Delta variants, whether it is a dynamic around stimulus, whether it is uh, people getting back to it full time, um, these stores are going to see a lot more traffic than they did, uh, I believe, around COVID. Mike, we actually saw some interesting options activity uh, in this name today. Yeah, I mean, it traded more than 10 times its average daily call volume, normally trading about 13.9 or so, trading 140,000 call contracts, give or take. Most of that activity was just playing for a short-term sort of technical bounce. We were seeing a lot of activity in the 50 straight calls, ones that expire this Friday. Trade that I was looking at was actually the ones that expire next Friday. Over 10,000 of those traded for about 60 cents. And obviously, buyers of those calls are betting that the stock could rebound through the 50 level. I mean, it's getting down to a level where it could potentially see a bounce down a little bit below 47, I think. Jen's obviously a little bit with the charts better than I am. But at nine and a half times full year 2022. A little better? Only a little better? Okay, a lot better. We did options action for 10 years together, <laughs> Mel, didn't we? I don't <laughs> 10 years. And then Carter came in and dropped the hammer on all of us on the charts on that show. 
That's true. Hey, real quickly, I'll just say this. That <laughs> stock down 7.5% today. We saw Nike up 15% after it reported earnings. We saw Micron down nearly 6%. We are getting into Q2 earnings period over the next few weeks. And I'll just say, some of the, this is just purely anecdotal. We're seeing some volatility post-results that might have to do with high expectations. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, you've got your final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. In case you didn't know, it's Bobby Bonilla Day, that holiday that lives in infamy for New York Mets fans as a retirement deal for the ages. The former Met, who hasn't played in two decades, opted to get paid $1.2 million every July 1st. The financially strapped Mets made the deal in 1999 to avoid paying Bonilla the $5.9 million remaining in his contract. He'll get his final payment in 14 years when he is 72 years old. And the Mets, now owned by hedge fund manager Steve Cohen, are trying to capitalize on the deal by partnering with Airbnb. Fans can request an overnight sleepover at City Field, hosted by Bonilla himself later this month. The price tag, 250 bucks. I don't know if you're really making out on that. Uh, Tim, you're the Mets fan here on the panel, so are you kidding me? Absolutely. First of all, let's go, let's go Mets. <laughs> um, and yeah, you bet. You bet I'm sleeping out at City Field with Bobby. Bobby Bunia, um, by the way. I mean, look, for Met fans, this is this is absolute embarrassment. But this isn't Stevie Cohen's problem. I'll, I'll, the previous owner, not to be named, but uh, it's a shame Guy Adami's not here tonight to give me notable you-know-what. Um, look, time value of money, this is one of the worst deals you could have put together. Um, and at times, the Wilpons had you know, cash squeezes on their payroll that forced them to do really, really dumb things. Um, but at this point, look, the smart guy is Bobby Bonilla. We should have him on Fast Money. He's oh, a yeah. huge fan of the show. What uh, is he and, doing and, with I, this I mean, money? He, exactly. I think, I think it's time to figure this out. Yeah, what a deal maker he is, that's for sure. <laughs> time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim, kick it off. Sure. Uh, look, the S in RISE, or my acronym, is Schlumberger. And, and again, uh, the energy trade, whether it has to outperform, this company has underperformed, is actually relatively cheap to itself and cheap to the underlying asset. Karen Feinerman. Yes. So the C in Citibank is my final trade. Even though they're not going to raise dividends, they, are, <laughs> they can do buybacks. Too cheap on a tangible book basis. Congrats to Tim for winning the, the first half acronym trade challenge. I don't even know where guys, guys, hope trade um, has gone. My, my guess is Tim is still in the lead. Uh, Mike? Yeah, if I had an acronym trade, it would probably be GAF. That starts with a G. Google is the one I would pick. Trading at a multiple less than the S&P right here, I kind of feel like that's a good place to be. Or maybe it should be AF. Mm, yeah, right. that would I'll also work. Oh, yeah, yeah um, I would say the P in my apes trade, which really is an OTU, Mel, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Pfizer, yeah. I just think that that thing's been consolidated. I think you're going to see a breakout into the fall. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. Don't go anywhere. We've got a special bonus hour fast coming your way after this quick break. Stay tuned. Hey there, Mad Money fans. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim is off tonight, but you are in luck. We've got a bonus hour Fast Money coming your way, and we're taking your questions. So tweet us at CNBC Fast Money, and we just might answer you on the air. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Nadine Terman, and James McDonald. 
All right, let's get right to it. The second half of the trading year kicking off with a new record high. The S&P 500 closing at a new all-time high, and it was green arrows across the board with the Dow and the Nasdaq also posting gains. Among the best-performing sectors, energy, utilities, and healthcare. Energy, the notable standout is oil, soars above 70 bucks a barrel. And that leads us to tonight's first question. My name is Craig, and I have a question about the energy market. Over the past year, we've seen oil prices nearly double. The Biden administration has different policies on domestic oil production and relations with Russia and Iran than the Trump administration. How do you think the energy market will perform over the next 6 to 12 months? Thank you very much. Tim Seymour, why don't you answer Craig's question about oil? Where do you see it next 6 to 12 months? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love this format, Mel. So, so look, Craig, when you think about the energy sector, there's a couple things that I think are, are cliches for a reason. One, uh, the, the best response to higher oil prices, if you're a consumer, is higher oil prices. And that actually that leads to a supply response. The problem with that right now, though, is you're not going to get the, res- the supply response that quickly. And today we learned that OPEC and OPEC Plus, which includes Russia and the Saudis now working at least more amicably than they maybe ever have, decided to punt on, on actually cutting output. So we're still kind of like the Fed. OPEC is, is taking a very accommodative approach to tighter supply. Um, I should say, you know, the, the raise output, not cut. So to actually put a little bit more oil on the market. And they're not going to do it. Um, so I, I, I think the, the best thing, you mentioned the Biden energy policy. And I've also said multiple times, the best thing to happen to energy prices was the Biden energy policy, which is, is clearly uh, focused on EV, is, is focused on, on delivering you know, a environmentally safe platform and pushing back on, on carbon footprint, which is, is great for the world. It's also great for the underlying price of, of energy companies. And I think uh, I also have said many times, I believe, Oil companies especially are being run differently than they were five, ten years ago. That means that they're actually being run for equity investors, not growth at all costs in an environment where it was really all about production. Yeah, we've seen in particular integrated oils, um, you know, cutting back on their capex, selling assets to uh, to strengthen their balance sheet, Nadine. But if you were to pick uh, in the oil sector, where would you go? We still like Europe a lot, so Shell is one answer to that question, and the second one is BP. They're both doing a ton. They're obviously, you're talking about shedding assets. They're focusing on green initiatives. And I think Tim pointed out a lot of really important things. And to the point uh, here in California, uh, when you do a lot of environmental practices, what ends up happening, as we saw with utilities, is prices go up. And so just for that reason, I think you can answer Craig's question that you should see in the next year, prices continue to go up, especially with reopening happening around the world. So, you know, the XLE, just to let you know, is bullish and it's still mid-range, but you could pick it up at maybe 52, 53 and have a good trade. Yeah, OPEC is going to have a critical meeting, James. Uh, and at that meeting, they're, they're sort of weighing the balance between the reopening of major economies, particularly the U.S. and the UK and uh, Europe and the U.K., um, but also the impact of the Delta variant, particularly in parts of Asia, slowing, for instance, China as well as India. So where do you come out on oil? I uh, want to piggyback on uh, XLE uh, that Nadine just mentioned. I think this is a good holding to get exposure to the sector. It's the select sector um, for energy. And XLE, although it's doubled um, to the caller's point since the vaccine announcement, we still haven't gotten back to that $60 plus level pre-pandemic. And so from a simple investment thesis, buy low, sell high, I think there's still, um, as Nadine agreed with me, 
still room to go to the upside here based on the macro picture and the fluctuations that we're inevitably going to see uh, with the different um, oil uh, companies and, and oil holdings. I think this is where we get an indication of the overall broad sector where we can go higher. All right. Next question, another viewer looking for some guidance in the back half of the year. This time, this question is focused on the tech sector. My name is Logan Hawley, and I'm from Austin, Texas, where I work in the tech space. My question for you is with the rise in quantitative easing across 2020 and 2021, where we saw 40% of the U.S. total monetary supply being printed, how can we expect that and the rise of inflation to impact technology stocks that are already trading at such a high multiple to earnings, especially over the rest of this year? Thank you so much. That is a great question from Logan in Austin, Nadine, that a lot of tech investors are wondering themselves. We sort of got a taste of of what happens um, when inflation expectations go high, when the 10-year yield printed 174, and we saw that sort of revolt in the tech sector. Uh, But now that we've had that and we've had that taste, how do you think we do in the back half? And I think Logan, if you unpack his question, had two things, printing of money and then also about the interest rates, right? And so when you're thinking about those things, unfortunately, I think it's a thread the needle answer, which is you probably should have a Goldilocks situation for the next few months. But then come the fall, you got to be a little bit more careful with your tech because GDP growth is decelerating. And then inflation, it's really difficult to know right now how investors are going to react because inflation will remain at a high level, but the growth is going to be decelerating. And sometimes that ends you up in a situation of deflation, which is really bad for tech. That's the only time it's bad for tech. So you can hold on for a little bit while, but while longer. But Logan, check in with me <laughs> come August, September, and then I'll let you know what I think going after that. James, what do you tell Logan? I say if you're watching the inflation number as a predictor of where rates may go and what may happen with tech, follow the Fed's decisions around the changes in the estimates. If we look at the core inflation estimates for year end, they have been upwardly revised by 50% in just a month's period from the last meeting notes. Uh, And this number is going to continue to fluctuate and the Fed is going to continue to adjust uh, its stance on monetary policy. And I think that the impact is going to come if we see inflation accelerate and we see employment approach, full employment uh, over 5% towards year end. I think the Fed is going to come back and comment about the need to adjust its rate rise schedule. Not that we would get a rate increase in 2021, but I think we'll get a warning of a rate increase in 2022. And that, uh, by association with input pressure, going stocks if the enthusiasm comes out of those risk assets and we see the yield go back up on the 10 year. All right. I'm going to I'm going to re-ask the question for Logan, Tim, and that is, is there one tech yeah. name you think could fare well no matter what the environment into the back half of the year? First of all, I mean, Logan has got to be the coolest name I've heard. And, you know, I just want to get that out there. We, we've said Logan this, Logan that. I wish I'd renamed my, my son Logan. Anyway. All right. So so the bulletproof <laughs> tech name, I, I think, has to be a, a tech company. First of all, it's not a high multiple tech company. Um, and therefore, I, high multiple tech, I think, is very vulnerable in a rising inflationary world. And we've seen that. Um, I think actually as the Fed steps in and, and pushes back, uh, at least on the sense that they're in other words, get, regain some credibility like they did two weeks ago and say that we are watching inflation uh, and it actually pushes rates down. And then you are actually looking for the tech companies that are the most reasonable valuations. And I think that brings you right to Google and brings you right to Apple. Um, and I know, again, relative to itself, Apple's not cheap. 
um, but Apple has actually underperformed. And what's what's really actually broken out of and, and held the bottom of the range as you started to hear um, both the Fed, you know, reassert itself somewhat. Apple and mega cap tech have actually started to move right in the last two weeks. So I think they're they're kind of all weather stocks, whether you have slower growth um, or whether you actually the, the, the second derivative response to the Fed stepping in is actually people think the Fed's going to overstep its bounds. And actually, you see uh, a, a, a flattening of the yield curve. So um, I like Google because I think its valuation stands on its own in good times and bad. I like Apple because I think it's actually underperformed a bit. Um, and I think as we start to get into the holiday season, although a lot of sales have been pulled forward, in addition to the macro arguments I made, I, I think we haven't priced in any of that. Uh, and a lot of money still sloshing around with the consumer. All right. Next up, a question on the reopening. Will it bring some magic to the House of Mouse? Let's get to Riley in Georgia. Thank you for taking my call. With the economy getting back on track and everybody traveling again, do you think Disney will be a good stock for short term and long term? Thank you. James, thoughts on Disney? I think Disney had uh, a streaming announcement and an amazing streaming result, crazy numbers, great popularity, and they rushed in and they pushed the stock up to a level that it couldn't sustain. I think once the vaccine announcement came, uh, the reopening play got priced in on top of those streaming numbers. Uh, and we've been flat and we've been going down for the last couple of months. I think this trend continues. So much enthusiasm in a Disney stock. It's a great company. It's a great name. Great long-term hold that I would come in and buy it around the 130 level because I think between the streaming and the vaccine announcement, um, all the upside got priced in short term. Tim, is Disney too expensive right now? I don't think so. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, I take the hybrid multiple approach to their streaming business versus their, their core business. And again, it's a distribution versus um, kind of the traditional business. And I think you've got an argument also that the, the company that really underperformed, right, who, who was taking it on the chin in, in March, April, May? Uh, it was Disney. And it was, you know, we forgot all about this other part of their business. Then, of course, as we got into COVID and we said, OK, yeah, their parks business is dead. Uh, their studio business is has been stalled um, that actually people focused on streaming. I, I, I think although streaming also uh, look, I, the good and the bad of pulling forward some streaming subs is that, look, it, it jump started the model that was really the way you wanted to be investing in Disney that much going forward. So uh, I actually think COVID was very, very important to actually getting streaming to be the major part of this valuation and pushing that uh, front forward for investors. Disney's been a dog in 2021. It's actually underperformed. Uh, and I think it's a great second half stock, especially as we start to look and actually weigh the impact of, of the overshoot, I think, back into their parks and, and experiences business. Nadine? Bob Iger on June 1st sold 550,000 shares, so half of his holdings. I would follow what Bob did because he obviously is a pretty smart guy. It's like, do what they do, not what they say. So I would take some off the table right now. I think it's a great long-term story, but right now the trade's not in your favor. All right. We are just getting started on the special edition of Fast Money, so keep those questions coming. You can tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We'll try to get your question answered on air. Up next, we have got a question on AMC as Robinhood files to go public. We'll break down what, what the IPO means for the retail trade. All that and much more when this special edition of Fast returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story in the IPO market as Robinhood files to go public. Let's get to Kate Rooney with all the details. Kate. 
Hey, Melissa, the retail trading boom was really front and center of Robinhood's IPO uh, paperwork filed today and that eventual public offering. We got a look into the company's financials. For the full year 2020, the company was profitable with net income of $7 million compared to a loss the year before. Robinhood now has $18 million net funded accounts. That's up from $7 million a year ago, about 150% increase there. Assets under custody, meanwhile, $80 billion. That was up from just $19 billion a year ago. And they're setting aside between 20 and 35% of this offering for retail customers on Robinhood's platform. And as far as where they make their money, the majority is transaction revenue or payment for order flow. Most of that comes from options trading. Options and crypto combined make up more than half of Robinhood's revenue. Equities, meanwhile, about a quarter of revenue. Quick reminder, Robinhood is a five-time CNBC 50 company, CNBC Disruptor 50 company. It topped this year's list, and CEO Vlad Tenev is among the featured speakers of this year's Disruptor 50 Summit. You can register for that event at CNBCEvents.com. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Rooney. Our next question is actually about one of the hottest trades on Robinhood right now, AMC. Good evening, Fast Money team. Some apes want to hear recommendations on AMC Entertainment going into the 4th of July weekend. Um, I personally have been in for about two months now. I'm up over 500%. Just continue to add to my position. Have yet to sell a single share. Don't plan on going anywhere. Just want to hear the professional recommendations on AMC Entertainment and as to why we've been in this solid consolidation period for the past two to three weeks. I don't know if you guys caught that, but Aaron, when you said professional, you used the air quotes. <laughs> so, James, I'll go to you as the professional. <laughs> what do you tell Aaron about AMC? And he was referencing specifically July 4th weekend because theoretically people might be going to the movies um, over the weekend. Right. And so this is the first time we've seen consolidation up in this $50 level. Um, and so it's a new phenomenon for something that is a tremendous phenomenon in itself. Uh, with the gains that you have, I would definitely focus on protecting your downside. This is a very unpredictable holding. It's a very unpredictable market. And I think the prudent thing would be uh, to take a portion of those gains and put in some downside protection. We don't know what will happen coming out of this consolidation. Uh, The consolidations we've seen have been at much different levels. And so I would just focus on uh, covering your downside. Yeah. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. Risk management. And and again, for someone that's actually looking to add more shares and doesn't want to sell any, again, that's really clear. And and there is a passion behind uh, the group that is investing in AMC. And I, I you know, like I, I will take you back to fundamentals that I don't think I don't, it doesn't matter what happens this weekend in terms of you know where you have exclusives and at the box office. And it's going to be exciting. And who doesn't like to go to the movies? And really, uh, the kickoff of the summer season, et cetera. It doesn't matter to me. Um, look, the, the fundamentals around this stock, even if they're scooping up you know, cheap assets in the theater chain world, um, you know, and they've added some some other, uh, you know, tech and CPG and entertainment folks into a C-suite. Um, and it may sound good on an org chart, but I'm telling you the short to medium term, uh, I don't think really changes the story. Um, the short interest has been what the story has been about. Uh, yeah. Short interest, I think, is around 17 percent now. And, and I think it's come down substantially, but it's still elevated. Um, therefore, I think you still are going to have to see uh, people come back into this name. But, but again, play risk management here. You're, you're fired up over this name. That's great. You're not going to sell any, so protect yourself. 
Yeah. Aaron had mentioned apes, and apes want to hold forever in fundamentals. Has never really, they've never really played a part of the story at all, clearly. So, Nadine, this is really a question of trade management. If you want to stay in the trade, what would you do? I think you heard it from James and Tim, got to yeah. protect a little bit. So Because what you have here, it's bullish short-term and bullish intermediate-term. And I'm looking at at least our trading range, it's about five to one upside. So that sounds great. So maybe 53 to 59 and a half. But the problem is it's an implied volatility discount of minus 38. And what does that mean? Is that people aren't buying protection is that versus before. And so this is the time that you should do that. <laughs> if no one else is doing it, you should, especially because on a volatility adjusted basis, our momentum signal at our firm is showing it a neutral. So it's not real positive and bullish, it's a neutral. So I would either take chips off the table or if you're a long-term owner of this, get some protection, try to get it. All right, next up, a question, one of the newest names on the street. Hi, my question is about DD Global. Kramer was very positive about it Tuesday night just before the IPO. I would like to know if you guys still feel the same way about it today. Thank you. Tim, we used to call you the ambassador on Fast Money because you were the one specializing in emerging market stocks and in overseas stocks. What do you think of Didi? Look, I love the opportunity, and and I love the fact that you know the, their their total addressable market size is is gargantuan relative. And the question is really, what's you know what's the core business model? Look, they they have a couple investors here at the table, major investors here uh, in Tencent uh, and, and 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 SoftBank that you know I think also are are helping to position this company for the future. The real question right now for investing in China tech is what's the role of Big Brother, what's the role of the regulator, what's the role of, of uh, data privacy dynamics in China. And, and it's clear that China mega cap tech is trading at a discount and, and that there's actually a major uh, corporate governance haircut that's being put on these names. I think in the short to medium term, um, some of that fear factor isn't going to change. I'm not even sure what medium term means on this. There's no question. Uh, I don't think anyone trusts the regulator and Big Brother in China over here when investing. And, in, for example, look at Alibaba. Um, so uh, I think Didi um, will prove to be, if you, if you like Lyft and Uber, um, you should love Didi, I believe. Um, because, again, I, I think they're in a position right now of leadership in the biggest market in the world. And the profitability factors that these other companies talk about, they will see more near term than, than I think their competitors over here. Yeah. Um, although if you want a path to profitability, it's Uber and it's Lyft. And if you want a business that is squarely focused on rideshare, then it's Lyft, Nadine. So where would you go here in the space? You know, right now we're on pause, so this isn't a space that we're playing in right now. Um, and so my answer to the caller for is just to wait a little bit. Watch how this security trades. Tim points out some really good uh, points about this, which is a lot what has driven China tech. Well, number one is the macro on China. So the growth of GDP was decelerating when a lot of other countries were accelerating. And the reason for that is that they were the first one to come out of the pandemic. And so their comparables were really hard. That doesn't change for another, we call it a quarter or two. And so I think I'd be a little bit careful going overweight on China tech right now. Um, but you're going to pick up some great bargains for later on. But, you know, watch this thing trade a little bit before you jump in. All right. Still ahead, we're tackling the crypto craze. One viewer wants to know if he should double down on his position in Coinbase. We'll get some answers straight ahead. And later, a question on the China trade as China's president issues a bold warning to the world. We'll break it all down when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money, where we are taking your questions. Next up, we are diving into the crypto craze. Red hours across the board today, and our next viewer wants to know how to play it. Hi, this is Brian from Oregon, and I have a question regarding Coinbase. I have been buying into Coinbase since its direct listing in April. I'm down 14%. It seems to be trading with the cryptocurrencies, but Coinbase is an exchange for crypto, has barely touched its total addressable market, and should be making money regardless of how crypto is trading. I'm a long-term investor. Should I hold on to it or even add to it? Thanks. Joining us now to help tackle that question is Dan Dolov. He covers Coinbase at Mizuho. He just put out a note today saying this could be the last hurrah for coin. Dan, welcome to the show. Um, why the last hurrah? Well, if you think about this uh, this name, it basically trades on crypto volatility. So they make a lot of money when people buy and sell. What we've seen is that in April and May, you've had a huge blimp in volatility and it kind of died out in June. So-called uh, crypto winter is happening right now. So what we expect is going to happen if this volatility continues to be very subdued into July, August and September, you're going to get upward revision of estimates for the second quarter, but then you're going to get simultaneously downward revisions for the third quarter and potentially down the road. So if our playbook continues, there will be a crypto winter, a lingering crypto winter, which we've actually figured out in a survey that we did recently. And that doesn't bode well, or actually bodes poorly for Coinbase revenue. So I wouldn't recommend actually holding on to it. We're neutral, uh, but we have downside from uh, the price where it's trading today. Haven't haven't the the seasons in, in crypto, haven't they been shortened um, just because there are more participants? And, and I'm asking because I think Tom Lee of Fundstrat just said this the other day, that, that he believes that even a, a winter will be much shorter and that over time these winters have been shorter. And so why should we think that this is going to be long enough for it to actually impact the whole back half of the year? You know, the answer is nobody really knows, right? And we're not, nobody really knows what the future nobody holds on, on, on crypto. But what I do think here is that at the end of the day, even if the volumes go up, the take rate or the yield continues to come down. So we've seen a consistent degradation of the yield over time. And that's for various reasons. One, there is more institutional and institutional actually pays a much lower fee. Two, there's a lot more Coinbase Pro on the system and Coinbase Pro comes in at a much lower fee than the regular Coinbase. And by the way, it's free. So anyone can actually, you know, transfer from regular to Coinbase Pro. And three, over time, we expect more competition from the Cash App, from Venmo. Uh, We've done a survey that shows that 40% of Coinbase traders of of Bitcoin actually trade Bitcoin on other platforms. So I think over time, you're getting a lot more negatives and positives impacting the yield and competition. And that's going to drag down uh, revenues, regardless of whether it's a winter or not. So I was going to ask you about some of the other platforms which you've been bullish on, like a PayPal, for instance. So if there is this crypto winter and volatility gets compressed, do we also see the negative impact on some of these platforms as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this, this, the tide lifts all boats and, and vice versa. I, I do think that they're a little bit more insulated if you think about the cash app. So Bitcoin is only about 8% of gross profit on the cash app, 4% of gross profit overall, including their point of sale system. For PayPal, that number is even lower. So, of course, you know, when Bitcoin revenues uh, dwindle, that, that hurts everyone. But I think it's the degree of reliance on a single source of revenue that's a little more muted for the other platforms. Plus, I think that both you know, uh, Cash App and uh, PayPal, we hosted the, the top guys from their crypto initiative last week for, for, a, for a meeting. And they have some very far-reaching long-term thoughts about blockchain, which I think are really interesting. So it sounds like they're thinking beyond 
just you know any coins and they're thinking about how they how can they utilize blockchain to get people in the door for PayPal. So I think the play there is a much longer play beyond any specific coin. Dan, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Dan Dolov of Mizuho. Let's trade this. Um, let's first tackle Coinbase. James, what do you say? I say when I looked at the prospectus before the IPO and then looked at the Q, uh, second quarter numbers, first quarter numbers, eye-popping numbers, the trades they can do, piggybacking the crypto space, but there is a coinciding of an all-time high on Bitcoin with the IPO. And anytime you have an IPO in a really hot market, potentially the peak of that market, that investment in the IPO can be problematic. And it raised my eyebrows that you're only down 14% uh, because this has a, so much downside risk to it relative to the IPO price. I think that given the volatility in crypto, there may be an abatement of that bullish tone. And that may translate into lower fees for Coinbase. Obviously, with such an amazing IPO, such amazing initial numbers, there's a lot to keep up with. I think the tape says that all this is going to continue to see pressure. Tim, would you rather Coinbase or Bitcoin? Oh. Um, wow. Great question. I, you I mean, say I, neither. Like, I think you could say neither. Out, the, the, uh, can I? I? I didn't know. I thought, I thought an answer was required. But... Um, it, it, look, I, I, Bitcoin, because uh, I think you've got a dynamic. What was just introduced in terms of the competitive landscape is very real. I mean, one of the, the, the reasons why, if you'd ask me or Square, um, you know, I'm, I might even, despite hating that valuation, the cash app, the stickiness, being able to do whatever you want on the cash app is part of the magic of the cash app. Um, but back to Coinbase. Look, I, I, I don't hate the story. I, I, and I, by the way, the chart, at least for now, looks Coinbase is basing around 210, 220, 230, something like that. They're, they're going to convert a lot of interested investors into active. They're absolutely going to be able to offer other products. Um, the fact that they've, they've grown their uh, customer base so dramatically doesn't mean that those people leave their platform. I think they're in a position to start offering other services that other uh, online brokers offer, and possibly in the crypto space, possibly in more traditional financial services. Um, but, but look, if you think Bitcoin is topped, um, then I don't think you want to own Coinbase. If you think Bitcoin's going through a winter and a correction, um, and it is what it is, whatever the timing is, and maybe it got ahead of itself, and maybe it's not going to 100,000 this year, um, uh, but, but you can't own Coinbase if you think Bitcoin's best days are behind it, because you've got a view on crypto that's not going to be consistent with, with an exchange, the leading exchange, be able to extend itself. All right. We are watching shares of Virgin Galactic, SPCE, Space, on the move. They are higher by almost 18 percent after hours. Let's get to Kate Rogers with the news. Kate. Hey, Melissa, that's right. Some news on the space race and the uh, Virgin Galactic stock probably higher on this here. The company announcing that it will attempt to launch its next test space flight on July 11th and that they will be carrying Sir Richard Branson, the company's founder, on that test flight. Now, of course, Branson's aiming to beat Jeff Bezos up into space. He plans to launch with Blue Origin on July 20th. Uh, Sir Richard Branson says in a statement here, as part of a remarkable crew of mission specialists, I'm honored to help validate the journey our future astronauts will undertake and ensure we deliver the unique customer experience that people expect from Virgin. So once again, looks like Sir Richard Branson might be Jeff Bezos up into space. Back over to you. All right, Kate. Thank you, Kate Rogers. And, and I'm waiting for Elon Musk to weigh in. Is he going to try and invest <laughs> Sir Richard Branson at this point? Um, James, what do you think of Virgin? If you look at the stock, it looks like a rocket that went up and fell down and launched again. 
Um, year to date, this has been an amazing story of a company, but the stock is incredibly volatile. I think that, um, you know, how nice it must be to, to be an eccentric billionaire to do space travel. Uh, but for us earthly investors, I think this is a holding that, you know, it's the unpredictability of it is too high. Uh, by the way, uh, they will publicly, Virgin Galactic says it'll publicly live stream the space flight across Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook so we can all see what Richard Branson is experiencing in this um, s- space voyage, Tim. But I, you know, there's maybe certain things I don't want to see him experiencing up there. Um, but that's, anyway, I, I think it, it's, it's fascinating. Look, um, and, and I think uh, I understand where thematically investors are, are, are chasing this trade. Um, but but I'm not chasing this trade and, and I'm not chasing them at these levels. I, I look the the FAA headlines last week took the stock back to its all time highs. Um, I would imagine uh, tomorrow we're going to see uh, and maybe even some technical guys will say that this is where you're breaking out to to carve out new territory in the space that is the stock chart. But it, I, I'm not flying. Uh, this is remarkable. I mean, Sir Richard Branson is 70 years old, 71 years old, Nadine. He he believes it's safe enough for himself to go. This is, seems like a big stamp of approval for the average, I say average in quotes once again, because not the, the average person can't afford to go on this flight, but for regular people <laughs> um, to go on this flight. Well, Mel, uh, fun fact, I actually used to go to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. So I was thinking about being an astronaut one day wow. a long, long time ago. Um, but I would not uh, I would not be getting out of uh, anything right now until we see a few flights go up. But I guess they have to do it in order to, to prove that it's safe for others. Um, but I look forward to watching them do it and, uh, and dream those dreams that I had as a little girl. <laughs> All right. Virgin Galactic up. But I'm not owning Eight. the stock either. <laughs> All right. Stock's up 18% right now. Coming up, clean up in aisle nine. Where is the love for Walmart? New exclusive results from CNBC's quarterly stock report. Plus one viewer wants to know if a breakout is building. And don't forget to send your questions our way. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We might just answer you on the air. We will be back right after this. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money. CNBC out today with its quarterly stock report. We asked a handful of market participants which retail stock they'd rather own for the remainder of the year. Amazon pulling out a clear lead, followed by Target. But Walmart struggled with just 12.5%. So let's get to a question on the big box retailer from Jimmy. Got a quick question for, about Walmart. Analysts are projecting the stock to go much higher. It's been around the 140 range for quite some time. Uh, do you see uh, it breaking out soon, and will Flipkart propel the stock much higher this fall? Thank you. Tim, what do you say? Well, let's, a- let's answer kind of working in reverse. I think Flipkart is important, and, and some of their other, you know, Jet and their forays into online uh, e-commerce in, in other places or, you know, where they've essentially uh, tried to have some intellectual 
um, you know, gain from you know, learning on the job in the space is starting to work. But more importantly, they've they followed Amazon uh, in, in terms of Walmart Plus and in terms of, you know, 3P and their fulfillment and using their large asset base to their advantage. Look, Walmart is a monster. They push everyone else around on price other than Amazon. Um, and I think when you look at the, they, for example, they dominate grocery. They have 22 percent of all grocery sales. And when you think about where Amazon is in terms of, you know, they're about 39 percent of all e-commerce in this country and where Walmart is as posi well positioned as anybody uh, to take some of that, especially uh, as they move from grocery into broader merchandise. That's where they want to be. Look, I, I love Walmart. I'm frustrated, too, by the last nine months in the stock. Um, I love the valuation. I think it deserves a higher valuation. It deserves more of an e-commerce valuation. It's another one of these stocks that gets a hybrid multiple when it begins to take on the legacy player that it's competing against. And I think Walmart, look, you hate the last nine months as a shareholder. You love the last five years. That's a great looking chart. Uh, and I think this is just a pause as it moves higher. James, do you like the next five years? I think so. There's a Walmart within an hour from 99% of the U.S. population. And while Amazon has invested billions of dollars in getting to deliveries within an hour, Walmart has an embedded advantage given that the bulk of its customers can afford its products and the rest can as well if Amazon can get it done. Walmart can get it done as well. I think the upside is there for them to catch up and surpass Amazon perhaps as the preferred delivery mechanism to more customers that can afford more of Walmart's products. Um, this getting reflected in the stock is another thing. I think Walmart might see some stability if we get some choppiness in the market later in the year. And so I like the stock. I've been a fan of Walmart for a while. It has not translated into an accelerating stock price relative to the sector, both Target and others have seen more enthusiasm. But I do think Walmart has the advantage long-term to get more customers on the delivery of e-commerce. All right, coming up, we've got a burning question on the cannabis trade. One viewer wants to know if now is a good time to get in. The one name he has on his watch list will break down that trade when we come right back. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money, where we are taking your questions. Next up, a question on the cannabis trade. Kareem asks, what do you think of Grow Generation as a long-term investment in the domestic cannabis industry? Um, Tim, what do you tell Kareem? Well, look, Kareem, GrowGen to me is is a specialty retailer that operates in the middle of the cannabis space. So, you know, whether you're if you're a home improvement guy, you're going to Home Depot or Lowe's. Um, the hydroponics uh, across, you know, not just cannabis uh, spaces is, is been hot and alive and well. In terms of within cannabis, look, GrowGen is the you know, the leader in terms of specialized and, and, and high growth in terms of their numbers. Uh, same store sales are probably somewhere 50 to 60 percent this year. They're growing organically, but they're also aggressively growing through M&A. Um, they're expected to be probably somewhere 450 to 500 million in revenues this year. This will be a billion dollar sales company in the cannabis space, at least a primary cannabis player uh, for their for their business while they continue to grow and take market share. So look, this is a, a major position in my ETF. I've owned it for a long time. I think the management team um, is, is done a great job of, again, looking at where they can actually be a, a B2B player, but also B2C uh, 
and grow within their own stores while also being very, very acquisitive. And I think they actually have some firepower, uh, both with their, the currency of their stock and, and actually money on their balance sheet to begin to go after even more acquisitions than they have. I mean, this is an interesting way. Many people think the cannabis trade is is picking a company that deals with the actual product. This is the seller of the picks and shovels, which is another way to approach this trade, Nadine. Right. And for the reasons Tim mentioned, it's obviously an attractive business and a solid management team with uh, a good strategy. Um, and But if you're looking at how to trade it, because it seems like that was a bit of the question here, you know, it is in a bullish formation, so that's a positive for your ownership of it. And it's got an implied volatility premium. So people are paying up for protection. They're a little bit worried. It's about 0.7%, I'd say. Um, and, but in terms of like a daily trading range, we're at about a minus 2.8 to 1 downside. So it's going to trade within a range. So I would, if I'm going to pick up more shares, I'd like to pick it up around 39. That's where I'd like to see it. Um, you know, as you said, the picks and shovels is great outside of just pure cannabis players doing M&A um, to, to bet on regulation. Um, we like this kind of stock. All right. Coming up, we've got a question on the China trade war as uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping issues a stern warning to the world. We'll break down how investors can navigate the global uncertainty. We're back right after this. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. This was the scene overnight in China as President Xi Jinping celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party and issued a stern warning to the world. CNBC's Eunice Yun is in Beijing with more. President Xi Jinping didn't mention the U.S. directly, but he said that China wouldn't accept sanctimonious preaching or bullying by any foreign force. He said anyone who attempts to do so will, quote, find themselves on a collision course with a great wall of steel forged by China's 1.4 billion people. President Xi's tough talk matched the show of force during the celebrations here for the Chinese Communist Party's 100th birthday. While China's own J-20 stealth fighters flew overhead, the president pledged to build up the military. He described the reunification of Taiwan as a historic mission, hailed a new world created by Chinese people, and promised to ensure stability in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was in lockdown today as it marked another event, the 24th anniversary of its return from British to Chinese rule. More media outlets there suspended operations out of fear after authorities forced the closure of pro-democracy paper The Apple Daily. The paper's parent, Next Digital, shut down today. Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yun in Beijing. Let's get more on the rising tensions out of China. Joining us now is CNBC contributor DeWardrick McNeil, senior policy analyst at Longview Global. He served in the Obama administration at the Defense Department, focusing on China's security relations with the U.S. DeWardrick, great to see you again. Great to see you as also, Melissa. President, President Xi's words doesn't sound like somebody who wants to play in the sandbox to the U.S. and its allies. How would you interpret that rhetoric? Well, Melissa, for the uninitiated ear, that was a very bellicose speech last night. But the general thrust of the message has been stated quite a bit by Xi, and that is we're big, we're powerful, we're here. And if you're going to be in China, you're going to play by Chinese rules. You will not set the terms of the debate. 
And if I were a business listening to that uh, last night, Melissa, I would ask myself whether or not my China strategy still meets with, and all of my assumptions still meet with the current strategic reality, and whether or not the rewards are still worth the risk. You know, a lot of people have long-term views about their involvement and engagement in China, 20, 30-year plans. And I'm not sure that Chinese shares that same window that many Western companies have about their existence in China. Things are shifting fast, as we saw last night in that speech, Melissa. Do you think that the risks to doing business in China broadly for U.S. companies, do you think the risks are higher now versus, say, five years ago? I do, but it's very much industry-specific, Melissa. So if you're in the financial sector, if you're an asset manager doing mutual funds, you're meeting with an open, you're meeting, being met with an open door. So Fidelity, BlackRock, Newberger Berman, all these companies are being welcomed into China. But that's because China has found that there is still a need for Western knowledge and Western products in their financial services market. But if you're a technology company, that window has, has literally shrank and it may no longer be present on either side of the Pacific. So it is very much industry specific, but I still would be asking myself, are my assumptions correct? And can I engage on China's terms if I'm a Western business? How important are values, national security, a free and fair market? And if all of those answers are very important, then you should really be questioning about how long you can remain in China in this environment. What do you think the administration's stance will be towards China and particularly trade? Yeah, you know, the Biden administration has kept this cards very close to the vest on trade. I think that they have decided that we're need, we need to look at ways to do more targeted uh, tariffs, if we're going to do tariffs at all, that the blanket approach did not really serve U.S. interests and, in fact, benefited China. Uh, so I do think the U.S. is looking to set better terms of trade. I think that they're going to be looking to go back, Melissa, to some of those structural issues that the Trump administration started to talk about but then shifted away from those things, technology transfer, state-owned enterprise uh, subsidies, and, and the like. So some of the structural issues, I think, will find its way back on the Biden trade agenda, and China's going to have to deal with that. DeWardrick, great to get your analysis. Thanks so much. DeWardrick McNeil Thanks. of Longview. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Um, and DeWardrick had mentioned technology as being a sector that may have harder times in China. We've got one final viewer question here. Hi, my name is Michael from Tennessee. My question is in regards to AMD and the current ban that Biden placed on solar materials coming from the Xinjiang region due to the Uyghur human rights issues. With this being where half of the global supply of polysilicon is produced, which is used to manufacture semiconductors as well as solar panels, do you see this as being something that will be able to correct quickly or will this extend the global chip shortage? Tim, I'll go to you. Um, the question was very specific about material source from Xinjiang, but um, more broadly, AMD and, and other chip companies may not have as, as um, a warm a welcome in China as they once had because of China, uh, China's ambition to have its own chip sector. Look, I, we, this is kind of where I think a lot of the, uh, this frosty geopolitical dynamic took place. Um, and, and I think control of technology, control of the Internet, um, and, and control of nanotechnology 
for the next you know, 20 to 30 years is really at the core of where we're at loggerheads. So, yes, I, I think that nothing has changed. National champion companies in, in China are, are going to be given an edge. And, and look, the previous administration spent a lot of time, um, you know, basically whacking away at those companies. And, and I, I think China is going to continue to be building uh, those strategic sectors and, and is not really going to accept any outside influence except for where it's needed. So, uh, look, I, I, when I think about all of this with China, China has to play nice when it comes to financial markets. As Dwardrick referenced just where the financial services companies are allowed, look, China wants to be a money center. Um, and the reason the U.S. has the influence in the world that it does, one of them, one of them is because of, of our markets, uh, our dollar uh, and our financial system. I think China has to, to kind of balance this off as they play rough. But um, no, I don't I don't I don't think the technology world is is going to be a warm place. Um, 15 seconds, uh, Nadine, we've talked about the Chinese champion companies, even they have not had an easy time in China. So which ones would you say would might be a buy right here? You know, we still like Tencent, but you got to just be careful. You have to be a long-term owner. Um, also, Billy. Right. All right. Nadine Terman, Tim Seymour, James McDonald, thank you. That does it for us in the special edition of Fast Money. The news of Shepard Smith starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.